Hey, everybody. Thanks so much for tuning in to this week's episode of CEO Sit-Downs. On today's show, I interview the CEO and co-founder of Titan Industries, Ryan Condren. Ryan first got involved in the Bitcoin space in 2012 and in 2019 founded Titan with a mission to decentralize Bitcoin mining pools. I first learned of Ryan and his work with Titan at the Bitcoin conference this past April in Miami Beach, Florida, where he spoke on a panel about Bitcoin mining. In today's conversation, Ryan and I cover everything under the sun, it seems. We talk about what exactly is Bitcoin mining, Ryan's favorite cold storage products, his company Titan and how its mission has evolved throughout the years, his thoughts on the fall of FTX, his thoughts on the Bitcoin bear market, the centralization of mining pools, all that and more in today's conversation. In short, it's one you won't want to miss. So, without further ado, I invite you to pull up a chair and listen in to my conversation with Ryan Condren. Good morning, Ryan. Welcome to the show. So happy to have you on. How are you this morning? I'm doing good. Thanks for having me, John. Awesome. It's my privilege. Really, it is. Um, but first things first, Ryan, why don't you give the folks who are listening an idea of your background, who you are, and what exactly your company does? Um, yeah, my name is Ryan Condren. I'm the CEO of uh, Titan. It's a private mining pool company. So we, we formed uh, about well, four years ago now. Um, we, we do private mining pools for really large Bitcoin miners. And uh, my, my background is I've, I've been a software engineer for the last 20 years of my life. And I got into Bitcoin in late 2012 and quickly fell in love with mining and the ecosystem and just uh, learned as much as I could as I went. 2012, that's, that's pretty early. What exactly um, grabbed your interest? What, what got you going down the rabbit hole, as they say? Um, the, the fascination with... Um, sovereign currency, this idea that you could actually truly own your own finances. Um, you know, I, I don't know how many people listening have ever interacted with ACH um, transactions with the local banks, or if they've uh, ever interacted with um, wage garnishments, or uh, credit card services that will just randomly, you know, give you a fee because they think you signed up for a service you didn't sign up for. You quickly realize, you know, when you start interacting with all these institutions that you don't truly control your finances, you don't truly control your money. Um, you know, anyone that's had a bank account get locked um, can attest to that. So when you know, I heard about Bitcoin, I heard this idea of the sovereign currency system that was peer to peer. I was I was highly skeptical that they had solved this issue, number one. And number two, uh, the aspect of mining where you could actually generate this currency uh, with no centralized authority. It, it was um, it, it was it was hard to believe, honestly. Uh, so I, I spent a lot of time talking to my buddy and doing research, and and we were digging into it pretty deep. And the more I found out about it, the more I was hooked. That's terrific. Um, but tell me, Ryan, when it comes to, of course, you guys are a Bitcoin mining pool. You do pools for larger Bitcoin miners. Give the folks who are listening an idea of what Bitcoin mining is, because. You know, within the Bitcoin ecosystem itself, there's been a lot of debate whether mining is even the right word to describe what the what the action is, the proof of work um, yeah. aspect of Bitcoin. What are your thoughts on that, first and foremost? And then if you would kind of give us an idea of mining in its totality. Yeah, mining, I mean, the, the term mining has a lot of interesting parallels uh, for, you know, what we're doing with Bitcoin, this, uh, this proof of work algorithm. I mean, essentially, we're, we're guessing numbers really, really fast. Um, so if you look under the hood in Bitcoin, it's uh, this algorithm called SHA-256, so SHA-256. And the number 256 is just significant for the, the number of characters that come out the back end of the, this black box, if you will. So whatever you put in on the, the front end of the, this transfer function, uh, on the back end, you'll get 256 uh, you know, characters out right uh, so it's always a fixed length string so if you put hello world in the one end you'll get 256 characters out and you'll always get the same characters out on the back end 
Um, now, if you put one of the key principles of this algorithm is if you add an exclamation point or a period or you alter that initial uh, text going in at, at any or data going in in any way, you will get a completely different 256 character character output. And you can never link the, the input to the output. Like it, it seems pseudo random, but it's it's consistent with, you know, input A will always equal output B. Now, that's the first premise of SHA-256. Now, why that matters with Bitcoin mining is we don't know what the output is going to be, right? So we, we have input A and we have output B, and we, we never know what we're going to get on the back end of this transfer function. So it's, it's not, uh, you, can't, you can't guess it. Now, the output of this transfer function is what solves the block. It's like this puzzle. Now, everyone will agree to a certain solution of this puzzle if you can find it. But the trick is you have to come up with the right input on the transfer function. So input A, you have to come up with the right uh, combination of characters to go in to solve the puzzle on the, the back end. Now, that's, that's simplifying something that's very, very com complicated. And uh, I might have lost a lot of people already on that. <laughs> But, you know, the, the, the boiled down version is we have created these integrated circuits called ASICs and they're application specific integrated circuits. And they will guess these inputs or these random numbers going into this transfer function of SHA-256. It's actually double SHA-256 if you really if, if you really want to get technical or specific here. But the transfer function or I'm sorry, the input for the transfer function is essentially these random numbers. Now, we've built these machines called ASICs um, that will guess these numbers uh, the, very, very quickly, right? So the, the leading uh, device right now will guess this number uh, anywhere from 140 to 150 trillion times a second, okay? And that's, that's a lot of guesses, uh, trillion. So we're guessing with really, really, really large numbers. The, the amazing thing about numbers is there's no end to them. They will just keep getting bigger. You just keep adding one, right? So we have literally uh, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of these devices around the world. They look like uh, souped up toasters, if you will. So <laughs> they have probably, uh, you know, several hundred chips on them, two to 300 chips for a lot of them. And uh, they have fans and it's just basically this metal box with a ton of uh, with like typically three uh, integrated circuit boards with a ton of chips on them and fans for the input and the output to try to cool these things off. And these little chips will guess numbers incredibly fast. So what happens is you show someone one of these little toasters and you say, if you plug this toaster in, it's going to burn some electricity, but you will earn 20 bucks a day. It just prints cash. If you show this toaster to someone that's really wealthy, they're going to respond with, well, how many can I have? Where can I get them and where can I put them, right? So what you have is a land rush around the world looking for cheap electricity, stable infrastructure, and favorable governments, to be honest. So anywhere you can find a combination of these three things, you're going to uh, have a land rush for miners where they're going to buy up every warehouse that has access to power, um, every plot of land that has access to power, and they're gonna start building facilities. And case in point is Texas. If you look at Texas, where uh, it has a great government involvement, it has fairly good infrastructure, lots of land, and very low uh, power uh, costs. So uh, what you see is you see mining facilities popping up all over Texas. People are buying plots of land, they're tying into the grid, and they're putting these massive facilities of hundreds of thousands, if not millions of devices all over the state of Texas now uh, to guess these numbers and solve the puzzle on um, every 10 minutes for Bitcoin. So that's that's as uh, <laughs> a high level breakdown as I can put it really. No, no, I appreciate that. And I will say in regards to the great state of Texas, I mean, however many years ago they had that cold snap that really wrecked their um, their usual you know course of course of business if you will for all those people who are used to warmer temperatures but i just saw an article i can't remember who put it out where they are, the the miners returned x amount of gigawatts back to the 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 grid because they were asked to shut off when it got cold and things and it, i mean it buffered them from the same same issues that years past really really screwed them up so 
Um, I think their governor, Greg Abbott, certainly deserves a lot of credit there um, for being listening to your point about um, willing governments. It's an amazing thing um, with Bitcoin miners with how much electricity um, they'll use to you know, convert into this uh, uh, derivative commodity called hash rate. Mm-hmm. Um, but what's fascinating is you can run one of these miners 24-7. And if you want to uh, essentially return power to the grid or use less power, you can turn it off. And you're not disrupting any other service by turning it off. Now, if Amazon Web Services tried to do that with a server farm, they would take down a good portion of the Internet. You know, yeah. like if they tried to curtail how much electricity they used. Just about any other industry, if they tried to curtail how much electricity it used, it would have a devastating effect on the ecosystem around it. With Bitcoin, it's really fascinating because you have these devices that are deployed in such large quantities in such a distributed fashion that you can turn off, you know, chunks of the hash power grid, if you will, and the network still keeps going. You will still get a block every 10 minutes or thereabouts. Transactions still get processed. So even with this entire state of you know, Texas going down during winter storms and large amounts of facilities in Texas turning off, Bitcoin didn't skip a beat. It still processed a block just about every 10 minutes. Well, and talking about not skipping a beat, when China really nixed Bitcoin, what was that, 2021 now? Um, yeah, summer 2021. 2021. I mean, didn't skip a beat at all. Um, no, you know, we, we yeah. saw maybe a, a few blocks delayed up to a minute. But, you know, when you have, wow, you know, upwards of 40% of a hash rate of a network, you know, or just if you just consider computer processing, if, if 40% of the computer processing of any service went down and, you know, that type of fault tolerance is almost unheard of. You know, we had uh, the largest um, geographic area of, my, you know, condensed miners um, all, you know, go offline within maybe two months of each other. Um, so we saw significant uh, drops in the hash rate and the difficulty of the network and the difficulty just took it in turn and self-adjusted. It really is amazing. Um, it, yeah, it's hard to wrap your mind around just like as as a innovation within the scope of history really um yeah it's it's crazy um but back back to titan here ryan i want to i want to talk more about that how how did you get into this idea of you know we need to be the guys doing the pools we're not doing the mining exactly but we're helping people pool their miners together that's um i mean that that gets down into the weeds uh some more but you know er, early on uh, when i when i got started um you know, playing around with crypto, uh, you know, I really dove in deep a lot in 2013. And we saw more and more, uh, you know, alternate cryptocurrencies coming on the market. So we saw a lot of people fork. you know, it's called forking when you copy a, a code base of a program. So people would uh, fork the Bitcoin repository, and they would create their own cryptocurrency. Um, or they would fork a, a Litecoin repository, which is also a fork of Bitcoin. And you'd start seeing all these, what they called um, cousin or sister coins pop up. And uh, 2013, we saw this explosion of these alternate sister or cousin coins. Um, and they were all you know, relatively new technologies. People were altering and iterating on the different algorithms, um, on the different concepts. There was everything from like Lotto coin, where every single time you found a block, it would be a different size payout. Just it would like roll the dice every time it got a payout to uh, things like Dogecoin popped up where it was just like, it was like a meme coin. You know, you just had a a bunch of people thought it was hilarious and it was this dog and it was all about this lingo of like much wow, such awesome, you know? And they, it it was, it was a, it was running joke, right? But it was, it was mineable. So people were, people were mining it. And I, you know, I, I quickly realized that a lot of these coins that were popping up didn't have stable mining pools. Now a mining pool is where you take one of these toasters if you have just a single toaster, you can or miner, if you will, uh, you can mine directly. You know, you can mine directly against the the network itself, and you can you can guess for the 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 next block or the puzzle that will solve the next block. Now, if I have two of these things plugged in, what's going to happen is they're going to guess the same numbers at the same time or relatively close to each other. So they're going to be doing duplicate work, right? And I don't want them doing duplicate work. So 
I'm going to say, you know, this, the first toaster is going to guess zero through a hundred billion. And the second toaster is going to guess a hundred billion and one through a hundred trillion. Right. And I'm going to divide up the number space. So these, uh, these machines don't, uh, you know, trample on each other's work. Right now that's called pooling effort. So what a, a pool, pool software does is it's going to take a really, really large number space and it's going to slice it up and give out portions of work to each of the miners. Um, so what we noticed in 2013 was just a lot of these coins were coming online. A lot of people were trying to mine them, but there weren't a lot of you know dedicated mining pools to these coins. Uh, so if you wanted to you know actively mine at, at scale any of these coins, it just wasn't uh, you know, possible. Um, so that's when we started launching mining pools for a lot of these altcoins and. In 20, late 2013, um, early 2014, I launched about 80 different mining pools for a, you know, a bunch of SHA-256 coin, SHA coins, a bunch of script coins, which like Litecoin and a few others, um, and just uh, you know, did the best I could to, to run a lot of these altcoin mining pools. Um, through the course of you know, the next several years, I, just, I, I saw that the trend in the Bitcoin um, industry was that towards centralization, especially in the, the, the pool ecosystem. And we just weren't seeing a lot of great competitors or a lot of new tech coming out in, in the pool ecosystem. Um, so when we formed Titan, the original vision was, you know, making mining as easy as possible at any scale. This idea that we were going to build this mining management system and auto clocking system. And we did that over the first, you know, maybe year or two of Titan's existence is we, we worked with a very, very large miner um, to build this auto clocking and management system. Um, but in the back of my mind and kind of off in left field, we, we kept seeing, you know, this issue with the pools. And, you know, at the time, my CTO and myself had a lot of experience uh, in the pool ecosystem. And that's why in the, you know, early 20 or late 2020, um, we, we decided to shift and focus 100% on pools and just writing better pool software. Um, so we really started from the ground up, wrote brand new Bitcoin mining pool software, um, made it um, incredibly low level, optimized, fast. Um, and that's, that's what we we're bringing to the table. Um, and the goal is to make sure that there are more pools out there, more options. And that's a, that's a whole different discussion around the centralization of pools and, and why is it good for Bitcoin to be decentralized and how blocks are created and all that. But um, at the end of the day, what, what, we're, what we're doing is we're focusing on uh, large miners um, having their ability to create their own blocks and to generate their own revenue through the Bitcoin network. Hey, everybody. I just wanted to take a quick minute here to remind you that if you know any CEOs who would make great guests on my show, send me an email at john at ceositdowns.com. I am always on the hunt for great guests, so if you know anyone, please send them my way. I'd love to have them on. Again, you can reach me at john at ceositdowns.com. Now let's get back to the conversation. How, how do you measure what constitutes a large miner? Is that, you know, based on the number of toasters or does that go down to the hash rate? How, how do you quantify that? Yeah. So, you know, it's funny when you when you talk to a miner and you ask them how, you know, you know, you know how, how big are you? How much hash rate do you have? Right. They're never going to tell you how many devices they have and they rarely will tell you how much hash rate they have. They'll tell you how much power they're consuming. Right. Mm -hmm. Which is funny because they don't really tell you if they're, you know, consuming that power using like old IBM computers or they're using <laughs> that power to consume, you know, using the latest and greatest of mining tech, right? So you kind of have to assume that they're using the latest and greatest in mining tech and then you can kind of backwards calculate how much hash rate they have. So you have people saying like, oh, I have, you know, a, a 24 megawatt facility or, you know, we, we have a 10 megawatt facility, but, you know, we have capacity up to 80 megawatts. And mm -hmm. you'll hear a lot of that. Um, and basically, you'll you'll have to back calculate how much hash rate, how many devices they have, because at the end of the day, the the mining pools and the Bitcoin network doesn't care how much electricity you're using. It just it cares how many guesses you're making to solve, mm -hmm. you know, the statistical problem uh, with you know finding the SHA two fifty six output. So, um, the the kind of the latest and greatest devices right now are running somewhere around one hundred and forty, one hundred and fifty what's called terahashes. Uh, so that's a trillion hashes per second. 
um, and they'll consume about uh, you know anywhere from 3,000 to 3,500 watts. Um, and then you can backwards calculate, you know, 3,000 into, you know, 20 uh, megawatts. Now, all that to say, you know, when we're talking to a large miner, you know, what constitutes a large miner, um, it's really up to, you know, if they want to run a pool, it's, it's up to their risk tolerance. So mm -hmm. statistically, um, a miner running two toasters should have the exact same profitability as a miner running 100,000 toasters, right? It, it should not matter. Um, because you're, you're talking about mathematical averages and statistics, right? So over time, um, it should all be about the same. Um, but that's when we enter into this world of this weird quantum mechanic luck principle, okay? Where there's, there's no way really to understand why certain miners do better than other miners and, you know, why certain people have better luck than other people. Um, what we'll typically recommend for a large miner is a miner that's typically running around 5,000 devices, um, oh, wow. you know, we'll, or, you know, uh, north of a thousand devices, we'll say you're, you're probably pretty safe, uh, to have your own pool. Um, now if you're running, uh, so that's, you know, we'll say somewhere between, uh, one and three exahashes. Uh, so I, you know, that, that's just a really, really large number. That's a ton of guesses. So uh, the metric would be, you know, one to three exahashes. The, the, really safe, the really safe bet would be someone running around three to five exahashes to have their own pool. And what that means is they're going to be getting or uh, theoretically solving one block every 24 hours. So if they have really good luck or really bad luck, they should know within 24 hours how they're doing. Um, if their risk tolerance is larger than that, then uh, they could go with less hash rate, but then they're not going to be solving a block probably for like a week. Now, a week is a long time to know if something's broken or if you just have really bad luck. Um, so a lot of miners don't have that large of a risk tolerance. Um, you know, some miners might be able to go a month, um, you know, comfortably, but uh, the general sweet spot is one, you know, one day, uh, two days max for most miners. Um, now that's, that's a, that's a really technical low level, uh, yeah. answer. I apologize, if, um, but, uh, that's the, you know, the, several thousand machines would be, uh, the, the limit for uh, our software. Sure. No, that's really interesting. Cause the next question I have, does Titan just work exclusively with Bitcoin miners or do you guys dabble in any other digital asset token? So it's not specifically Bitcoin. It's, it's really SHA-256. We're inside okay. an algorithm family. Um, gotcha. Now, if you want to take our mining pool and you want to run it against uh, Bitcoin, that's what it was built for. Um, you could take the, the same pool and you could run it against Bitcoin Cash or you could run it against TigerCoin, which is, you know, this random altcoin out there. Um, and there's, you know, hundreds of random altcoins that are sitting on in the SHA-256 family. Um, but they all kind of compete for hash rate with Bitcoin. Um, so right now, the the only network with, uh, I'd say, at scale liquidity, so really could handle really, really large miners and actually pay out a significant enough amount every 24 hours would be the Bitcoin network. So what are your personal thoughts regarding, you know, the Bitcoin altcoin debate? Do you find yourself being a Bitcoin purist or do you have kind of your, um, what, what is the term? Uh, proper diversification as the saying goes. Um, I like the technology that's popping up in a lot of these other networks, right? Like what Ethereum's done with the web three ecosystem, um, this idea of, you know, writing programs around how your money, uh, functions. Um, you know, writing uh, altcoins and stable coins and decentralized exchanges and this whole DeFi ecosystem, I think is absolutely fascinating. Um, and I think it's really revolutionizing a lot of the way we think about money and how we handle value transfer. Uh, Bitcoin, on the other hand, is like this stable giant, you know, and when I say stable, it's almost like, you know, on the nose, tongue in cheek, because everyone looking at the Bitcoin uh, price and the exchanges is going, oh man, it was 65,000 last year and now it bottomed out at like 15,5 and now it's back up to 20, you know, and it, it's all over the place, you know, but 
when I'm talking about stable, I'm talking about the technology. I'm talking about the, the fact that it, it does something incredibly well at a very simplistic level. Um, and, and because of that, it is, is very stable. And, and crazy enough, uh, people will you know, compare Ethereum to Bitcoin. They'll compare Solana to Bitcoin. They'll compare all these other coins uh, to Bitcoin. Um, and it's honestly like comparing a, a pebble to a boulder. Because at the end of the day, if you were to add up the market cap or how much all these other networks are worth, if you added up the, the next 100 um, most valuable networks, um, it would barely, if it might not even be worth the same as Bitcoin. Like the next 100, that's including Ethereum, including Solana, including all these, you know, Polygon and all these other chains that people love. If you add them all up, it still doesn't equal Bitcoin. Um, just to put it in perspective, um, Bitcoin is really the only uh, chain at this point that has a significant amount of liquidity and wealth behind it. Um, for actually institutional investors and, and, you know, even governments to actually take a look at now. For sure. I recently read um, Fidelity put out a report of why folks should consider Bitcoin apart from the rest of the digital asset um, ecosystem. And they had a chart depicting just that. And it's it's kind of funny to look at um, just because you hear all the all the hype is around these coins where people see the promise of going from, you know, one cent per coin to maybe a dollar. Um, but Bitcoin yeah. is still the elephant in the room in a very real sense. Um, but the next thing I wanted to um, mention, Ryan, was when when you are you know working within the Bitcoin ecosystem, what is the most common objection you hear to Bitcoin and why folks don't want to um, buy it? They don't want to get into it at all. I mean, mm. we just got through the holiday <laughs> season. You might have encountered some of this around your dining room table. I don't know, but... I mean, I honestly, I, I think I had a lot of those conversations in 2013 and 2014. Um, sure. I, I think that the last resistance was uh, my my uncle had had mentioned it being just uh, you know, just kind of like a scam or a, a foolishness, you know, and that was maybe 2016. Um, so it's. Uh, more and more people are kind of sitting up a little straighter the long longer it's here the you know um the the biggest objection or well, the two biggest objections i've heard to it one it's too technical people just don't understand it and uh, people are very uh, fearful of things they don't understand so they don't want to touch it and then two it's oh it's bad for the environment which is coming from really just hearsay and people are just repeating things that they've heard from other uh uninformed people so it's it's one of those hard things where I'll, you know I'll, I'll just have to break down to a, a basic foundational belief if they say it's bad for the environment and i'll say why and they say well because it uses a lot of electricity and i'll say and why is that bad for the environment and then it's oh because generating electricity is bad for the environment okay well why is generating electricity bad for the environment oh because it uses fossil fuels and i'm like okay well now we have the false premise because a lot of electricity is not you know burning fossil fuels to create a electricity that's not how a lot of power production works um so you know the more you dig into people's understanding of how things work you quickly start realizing how it breaks down and why they came to you know an unreasonable belief like bitcoin's bad for the environment you know um under the same you know under the under the same principles you can say solar panels are bad for the environment or you know People will say driving a car is bad for the environment. Well, I'll say, well, owning too many horses is bad for the environment. You know, it's like you can you can make so many different debates around all this stuff. And it's just it's it's silly because you really just have to dive into a lot of, you know, false information that they believed early on. Um, the the first thing that I encounter, though, that I mentioned with just Bitcoin being too, too difficult, um, that that's one we do have to overcome as an industry still. Um, the, this idea of just ease of use, um, while still maintaining privacy still, while still maintaining sovereignty, um, but providing better user experience. And I know a lot of wallets have, you know, made, you know, leaps and bounds in the last few years as far as user experience. But if the best, you know, truly secure storage that we have is in a ledger 
And every single time I want to send a transaction on a ledger, I'm sitting here clicking these buttons going next and next, next, you know, and you know, if no one's ever used a ledger, then they don't know what I'm talking about. But if you've used a ledger, then they immediately click because it's showing you these hex codes. Like if you ever do an Ethereum transaction with a ledger, it's showing you the hex code confirmations. It'll show you like 20 different confirmation mm-hmm. screens guaranteed you know, the, the majority, if not every person does not write down those hex codes and confirm the hex codes because they won't even know how to do it, right? There's no tool out there to like transfer these hex codes and, and confirm the transaction. It's just showing you nonsense and you're just signing it, you know? Um, and when we think that's secure and we think that's good user experience, it's, it's really silly. Um, so we do have a long way to go in the greater crypto ecosystem for better user experience. Um, but I'd say those are probably the two biggest um, adoption issues I, I've heard of to date. Are there any um, wallet providers out there that have really uh, won your adm- admiration in that sense of making the UI very uh, friendly? Um, yeah, actually, the, a really unconventional wallet. Um, Bobby Lee uh, has created a wallet called the Ballet Wallet. And Say the ballet again, wallet, ballet as so in ballet dancing. Ballet. Correct. Yeah, okay. and it's okay. it's actually it's actually a metal uh, it's a metal hardware wallet. So it's 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 not technic it's not electronic at all. It's just a metal wallet with your uh, private key is on a like cryptographic foil print underneath your public key, which is a QR code on top. So you can you can tell if it's been tampered with. You have to peel off the top foil to see the private key QR underneath. Um, so there's there's some like security mechanism in it, but it's it's a really easy way to store cryptocurrency because it's an HD wallet, and any any time you scan this private key, um, it's it's going to be cross chain compatible. And what's really fascinating is that they paired this, you know, seemingly easy metal credit card looking thing with a private key on it with a really, really slick app. And the app lets you add, you know, hundreds of cryptocurrencies, a lot of ERC-20s um, in this app. And then you can you know, work with the balances, but it's all just held on this metal card um, because that's where the private key resides. Um, so it's it's a one-way wallet um, where you can send funds to the wallet, and it just it's kind of a like lockbox until you peel off that foil and then you scan the private key to uh, be able to do two-way. Um, I, I felt like he he nailed it as far as uh, user experience. It's very very simple. It's easy to understand, and uh, I I got some early demos of it. I gave one to each of my kids, and you know. That's uh, that's where they you know put their put their allowance or their you know their birthday present money or Christmas money and uh, that's why I've been teaching them to uh, do to cold storage that way. Super interesting. I hadn't heard of that one, but um, you said that was Bobby Lee who came up with that. Yeah, Bobby Lee. Okay. He uh, he's former large pool. Uh, he ran a large uh, pool out of China. He ran a one of the world's largest Bitcoin exchanges for a long time. Uh, now he's doing this wallet company. It's it's pretty cool. So speaking of uh, Bitcoin exchanges, Ryan, have you been following the FTX debacle very closely? Or <laughs> I mean, not not incredibly closely, but it, it's really hard not to uh, just obtain the information through osmosis. Really, yeah. I mean, uh, if you're anywhere around the ecosystem it's you're going to hear about FTX and um, you know, I had some uh, really close friends that got caught up in it and I didn't, you know, you didn't know they were uh, invested in it. Didn't know, you know, that they were playing around with, you know, Luna or Solana or, or even investing in, you know, FTX stuff. But um, yeah, I, you know, a lot of people I know had lost a lot of money and were devastated and, um, even people that, you know, aren't necessarily super crypto savvy, um, you know, FTX is, you know, they, they advertise like crazy. They, uh, they bought the naming rights to the arena in Miami. You know, they were, you know, yeah. front and center as a crazy successful crypto company. And, uh, it's, it let a lot of people down and it hurt a lot of people. So, I think it's going to take some time to come back from that. I think we're already seeing a little bit of um, bounce back. Um, but 
still people are, are, are pretty hurt. People lost a lot of money and it's going to take a lot of time for that to unravel, especially following the Celsius debacle, which was just a few months prior. Yeah, it's kind of been a bloodbath in that sense. Um, but then, I mean, FTX, they had Tom Brady, Mr. Wonderful, all these different people, and it's it's kind of mind-blowing. Um, and I'm sure there'll yeah. be book after book written on this whole thing. Um, but really, do you have any thoughts? Because a lot of people cast this whole FTX issue with the Bitcoin issue. And, you know, this is another reason why Bitcoin is, is a no-go for me. I never want to be in that situation. Would you yeah. feel 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 free to you know educate the listener on why why that's not the case at all? So I mean, this is why I'm a big proponent of. I mean, I, I, I I'm not in any way linked to Bobby Lee or the Ballet Wallet, um, but I'll say what what he did with the Ballet Wallet helps people understand that um, this is your responsibility to control um, this secret and that's what's uh controlling all of these assets um you know a lot of us you know including my parents um are used to traditional rails and traditional investing where they want to trust a centralized authority to you know manage their you know like a mutual fund or you know a brokerage trading account um where they they set up their financial information and now that that's the trusted authority to you know, control your assets, you know, and fidelity is, you know, that's where they've made their money is, is being that trusted authority. That's where, you know, JP Morgan Chase and Goldman Sachs and um, all these very, very large uh, financial institutions have made their money being a trusted um, authority for, you know, the, the everyday American that wants to invest. Uh, now enter crypto and FTX and you know, Coinbase and all these, you know, large exchanges, and they think it's the same thing. Um, they're used to going to E-Trade, and if E-Trade does something nefarious, then E-Trade is held responsible. So they trust E-Trade to hold their stocks for them, right? Well, people have to understand that crypto assets are not stocks. Um, they're very, very different than stocks. You do not own an actual company. You do not have any uh, dividends or accountability. Uh, it is a decentralized network, meaning there is no central authority. And if there is a central authority, then it's going to be quickly dubbed a security. And, you know, the, the SEC or other governments will will jump in um, because there, there is a uh, very, very strong distinction between a decentralized network and a company. And you know, people will invest in these decentralized networks thinking that they're investing in companies um, and you're, you're really not. And when you sign up for an FTX account or a Coinbase account or any of these other exchanges, they think it's the same thing as uh, an Ameritrade or an E-Trade account. And it's not. They're two completely different things. And if anything, we've done an injustice with our UX design in making it feel like the same thing. Um, but at the same time, it's... It's just a matter of education at the end of the day. So um, <laughs> I, I could go down that rabbit hole for a long time, but it's, uh, they're, they're very two, two different things. Yeah, totally. Because, um, I mean, one thing, and I've, I've just heard this, you know, kind of like osmosis, as you said, listening to different podcasts and whatnot, but FTX had negative 80,000 Bitcoin on their balance sheet, meaning that there were... <laughs> You know, clients upon clients upon clients who had, you know, see, had this Bitcoin in their account that was never really there. So, I mean, yeah. that, that, that's the issue that there was no verification. There was no proof of work as it goes. Um, but anyway, oh, they, let's- they borrowed they borrowed against themselves. And, you know, the the crazy thing is, if if you look under the hood in, in some regards, they weren't doing something that other financial institutions don't do. Yeah. Right. They, they were doing something that was actually a very common model. Now, uh, they took it to an extreme. You know, they created their own currency as a placeholder. Um, they over leveraged themselves. They, it was. They, they did it in a very, very irresponsible way, but it was still a, a well-known model, yeah. you know, in, in the banking sector. So, you know, at, at the end of the day, you know, if, if we didn't have financial issues uh, th 
throughout this world. Like we wouldn't have seen things like Lehman Brothers. We wouldn't have seen the debacle of, you know, uh, 2008. Um, the, the reality is uh, a lot of these large corporations um, and financial institutions, uh, no matter how much trust, no matter how much oversight um, we put on them or in them, um, they, they're profit-driven animals and they're going to do things to, to make a profit or to stretch their money. Um, and we've seen a lot of instability in our world because of it. Um, but I'm, I'm not an expert in any of these areas. I, I see what everyone else sees. And I'm, at the end of the day, I, I take comfort knowing that I can own my own currency. I don't have to leave my, my entire life savings in an account that is also accessible by anyone with a pin code at Chase or with a government ID. Um, I, I like knowing that I can really store my, my wealth in a way that I'm completely sovereign over. And I think it's been a long time since we've had something like that. Amen. And, and just going back to your point of um, FTX's token, FTT, what that really when I read how they had accumulated more than was actually out there and they were essentially propping up the market, um, to me, that is like such a central banker's issue. I mean, the Bank of Japan is yeah. going through that right now. And the United States, we're not there yet, but the demand for our foreign debt, our sovereign debt, is decreasing over time. Um, so it, it's so reminiscent of just a variety of issues that are seen throughout the broader financial system, not exclusive to blockchain or um, Bitcoin technology at all. Um, I'm definitely not an area in uh, macroeconomics um, or an expert in this area at all. I, you know, I, I watch what the the Fed does and I watch what these governments do with the currencies, and I find it absolutely fascinating. Like, you know, we're raising interest rates so fast that mm -hmm. it's causing other countries' currencies to fall in value. Um, it, it's it's absolutely fascinating. I, I don't understand it. I. I kind of see it after the fact. I'm like, wow, that's genius. Um, or wow, that's really uh, malevolent or, yeah. you know, wrong. Um, but at the end of the day, I, I really think it's it's really these, these governments are playing games, um, you know, whether it's, it's war games with each other or, you know, f financial games with each other to uh, get the upper hand. Um, uh, just count me out. Like, stop playing with my life savings. Stop playing with, you know, my financial security for my future. Um, and that's what I feel like these governments are doing. That's what I feel like the U.S. is doing with the in interest rates. Um, you know, I just, just leave me out of it. I, you know, I want to have sovereignty over my own finances. I want to be able to create my own company and my own business and write my own software um, to provide a better service and um, better experience for other people around me. I don't want to get caught up in these international geopolitical war games. Uh, it, it's, it's nonsense and it, it hurts a lot of people. It's devastating a lot of people. I mean, we've, I mean, we, we've cut off Russia, you know, from gl Swift, the global community. Yeah. You have, you have, you know, people that, you know, that are living in a country that now they're all of a sudden they're just, they're just cut off. Like how, how how is that reasonable? I don't care like how crazy Putin is, or you know, it's it's you have two countries are at war. One country decided to invade another country. However unjust that is, like that random farmer on the you know the northeast side of the Russia that has absolutely nothing to do with any of this, and he's just minding his own business, and all of a sudden he's caught up in these sanctions. Like it's just, it's it's crazy. And, you know, what if uh, what, what if that happens to us as individuals? You know, I moved to Puerto Rico um, last year. And what if that happens? You know, all of a sudden now anyone in Puerto Rico is, is cut off or anyone in, you know, a certain sector is cut off or they decide that anyone that holds Bitcoin is now a national security threat. So they're going to start, you know, hunting you down and freezing your, your accounts. I'm, I'm making a lot of this stuff up, but it's it's just to make the point that. Um, when you're tied to a, a governmental ecosystem for your life savings and finances, um, I mean, you, you're just basically in the, the chess game. You just become a pawn in the chess game. And totally. I don't think it's right. And well, and to your point, I mean, making some of that up, but some of it isn't made up. For instance, what happened with the Canadian truckers last year 
and how some yeah. who made like a $50 contribution to um, the convoy or whatever it was um, suddenly had their bank accounts frozen and things like that. I mean, yeah. so to a degree, I mean, to your sentiment of, you know, opting out and just choosing your own sovereignty and way of uh, business and way of money, I feel like that's a, and I might be biased here, but I feel like that's a growing trend that I'm seeing just within, you know, kind of the financial Twitter world. And just when I um, interact with people, they see these things, they don't know what to do, but there's an answer most definitely in Bitcoin, I believe. You know, people have been lulled to sleep with entertainment and social media and, you know, cheap junk food and cheap entertainment. Um, and they've they've checked out of the process. You know, yeah. pe- people don't, you know, they're they're everyone has the, those friends in the friends group that are like highly political and they follow all the political stuff. But, you know, the average American or the average person, um, you know, it seems it's, it's becoming global now. A lot of people they're they're not involved in, you know, the, the governmental authorities, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and we we kind of have uh, we're kind of the the lobster that got thrown into the pot of cold water and the heat gets turned up little by little by little, you know. And before you know it, we're boiling. And I, I feel like this is a, a slippery slope, especially in our country. If you if you track uh, you know the financial positions and you know the way politics have gone in uh, North America, Canada, U.S. over the last hundred years, it's literally like a socialist pot of water. Mm-hmm. You know, where at one point we did have free market. At one point we did have you know freedom of speech. At one point we did have um, the Second Amendment. Um, the right to sovereignty, to right, the right to own your own property. Um, show me a single state that doesn't have property tax. I'll show you a state that actually lets you own your own property. If you stop paying your property tax in any state, you can lose your property. That's not real private property ownership. And that's part of you know Karl Marx's Communist Manifesto: eliminate private property ownership. You know. Um, so we have a lot of things like this that people just don't even pay attention to. Um, I had a great discussion with someone the other day about um, the the um, the Second Amendment and this idea that uh, everyone says, "Oh, the Second Amendment is the the right to bear arms." And I was like, "No, no, it's not." And they're like, "Well, what are you talking about? Of course it is. It's the right to bear arms. It's it's the right of the individual." I'm like. No, like the Second Amendment wasn't actually written to the individual. The Second Amendment was actually written to the government because you, you're, you're, you're cutting it short. There, it, it's an actual, the Second Amendment is a limitation on the government. It's not a right for the individual. And, and when you flip it around like that and they actually start realizing, oh, wait a minute, it's the right to bear arms shall not be infringed. It's actually the one amendment that's a directive towards the U.S. government that says you're not allowed to infringe the right to bear mm-hmm. arms. Um, it's not a right for the individual. It's an it's a boundary. It's 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 shackles on the U.S. government saying you can't infringe this. Right now, when you interpret it like that, that means every single uh, magazine law, every single law about safety triggers, every single law about munitions, every single law about registering weapons, everything that infringes on that right in any way is now a violation of the Second Amendment. But they haven't interpreted it like that. They always cut it off at the right to bear arms. And because of that, now we have 50, 60, 70 years of court rulings that have violated the Second Amendment and no one's called them on it. You know, this is this is the the lobster in the pot. You know? So I'm like <laughs> Uh, yeah, at this point, like, yeah, we can get we can get political, we can go all over the place. But, you know, at, at this point, I don't I don't know how we fix this, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, no, it's it's certainly interesting. And it, it certainly causes one's brow to furrow and all these different things. <laughs> um, yeah, who knows? But um, on a more lighter note, if we can go there, uh, I appreciate sure. any good discussion, <laughs> especially <laughs> things of, of weight. Um, when it comes to Bitcoin's price, okay, Kathy Wood came out, I don't know, maybe a month or so ago and said, you know, she thinks the bottom is in for Bitcoin, that they're seeing a capitulation in all their metrics. Any thoughts on that? Because 
if we go off the last last week's price movements, she might be right. What do you think? Um, well, I think Bitcoin's going to go up and it's going to go back down and then it's going to go up again. It's going to go down again. It's mm-hmm. going to go up again. It's going to go down again. Um, you know, whether we've seen the bottom, I don't know. Um, do you, you know, pay attention be, to that kind of stuff or do you just focus mainly you on know the, what? the I, fundamental? I, I, if I'm day trading or if I'm just like playing around with it, then yeah, like I'll give myself a heart attack and I'll watch it, you know, go up and go down and go up and go down and, you know, and it's, it's like trying to catch a falling knife sometimes. It's just, mm-hmm. it's terrible. Um, but historically I've done the best as an investment if I just don't even look, if I just ignore it. Because at the end of the day, the technology is the same. Um, so I can speculate on bottom, I can speculate on top. But what I do know is we have a technology that actually a few years ago allowed you know one person to send another person a billion dollars. It was completely anonymous. It cost about $700 in transaction fees. It took about 30 minutes to settle. There's not another financial system on the face of this planet that could do that. So be, because of that, I know that the technology is sound, the, the utility is sound, and whether it bottoms out at 15,000, 12,000, or 10,000, it, it doesn't matter. There's only 21 million of these things ever going to be you know, created, and almost 20 of them are, 20 million are already done. Yeah, totally. And I think that's where a lot of folks, uh, go astray they view the they they look at the price action they don't look at the fundamentals of bitcoin and based on what i've been reading what i've been seeing um total <coughs> rate has never been higher um we're yep. seeing an increased number of wallets holding at least what i saw two metrics one bitcoin and then point one bitcoin um and just all these different things um that said, and I know that at one point during our conversation today, you mentioned it. Do you still view the centralization of um, of Bitcoin pools, a Bitcoin hash rate, as a concern for the network overall? I, I do, and just just to touch on your your previous question, previous point, real fast. I, mm-hmm. I will. One thing I, I didn't mention was there is a theoretical limit to how far Bitcoin can go down, and not a lot of people will realize this is new Bitcoin is created by miners. Miners have a lot of fixed costs. Um, so when they have cheap electricity around you know, three or four cent power and they have low operating expense, they might be able to generate a Bitcoin for six or $7,000 a coin. Um, if they have more expensive power, you're talking five or six cent power, uh, maybe a little bit more operations costs, they're generating Bitcoin for 10 to $12,000 a coin. Now, they're not going to generate coins. They're not going to mine against the network if the network goes down to $10,000 because the difficulty is too high. It's going to take a while for the difficulty to adjust. And now they have a ton of operating expense um, in equipment. And now that's going to cause a lot of things to tumble. There is a, a pseudo psychological and artificial limit to how low Bitcoin can go before it starts uh, destroying the, the computational foundation. Um, so it's kind of a a fascinating, a realization when you start digging into that. Um, now could it go down super, super low because it's tied directly to the stock market and people panic sell in the stock market and they panic sell Bitcoin? Uh, yes, but it will most likely rebound very, very quickly because you're going to have a huge, um, a, a huge, uh, crunch on the amount of new product coming on the market from the miners. Um, so that, that. That's what I would say as far as how how far can it go down. Um, it's just there, there's a lot of fixed costs in creating it. So there, there's a psychological limit to how far it can go down. Um, as far as uh, centralization around pools, um, this is like one of the, the, the most ignored and, or best kept secrets um, in the Bitcoin ecosystem. And you know, I'll say it on stage, uh, you know, I'll scream it from the rooftops, uh, you know, I'll climb the top of a mountain and yell it if anyone will listen. Um, the Bitcoin ecosystem is centralized around three or four block producers right now. Um, and when I say centralized, centralized around it, I mean that uh, the top four mining pools generate over 91 or 92% of all the blocks. Okay. 
Now, people, if, if you've been around for a while, you've probably heard the term 51% attack. Okay. Now, that means that uh, you could technically outrace the chain by creating enough blocks to do what's called a double spend attack. You could send a large amount of Bitcoin to one address, you could send, and then you could uh, send the same amount of Bitcoin to another address. You could spend the same Bitcoin twice. And then if you race the chain and build enough blocks to, to out confirm the first transaction, there, there's a way of, you know, duping someone essentially, right? Now, if a pool wanted to do that, they would have to have a lot of hash rate in order to, you know, break this system in order to, you know, have enough confirmations, which most exchanges and pools will do around three confirmations. Some actually will do it in instantly, you know, one confirmation, they'll accept Bitcoin. Um, that's, that's pretty far under the hood, but I'll, I'll just say this is, you know, the top four pools are generating over 90% of the blocks. Um, the top two pools are generating about 67% of the blocks. Okay. So that, that's a pretty big issue. Um, and the, the number one pool in the world is a Chinese based pool. Um, now, if you look at all the charts, you, people are going to see Foundry at the top. Um, so it's a little bit misleading because Antpool, which is number two, also actually controls three or four other pools that are in the top 10. So it's all the same back end, but they put different branding on it to make people think it's more decentralized than it really is. Um, so it, it's, it's a little nefarious, um, but people are starting to wake up. We saw a, a news article just a couple weeks ago saying the top two pools you know, mined over 51% of the blocks, kind of highlighting it. Um, but uh, historically, this has happened before. We've seen like BTC Guild and CEX.io um, obtain a huge amount of hash rate and actually had over 51% of the network hash rate in one pool. And they self-regulated. They actually would turn off or they would reject hash rate in order to self-regulate and keep the Bitcoin network strong and decentralized. Um, and we're getting to that point where these top two pools need to self-regulate, but rather than self-regulate, we're seeing uh, Antpool is just being, I don't know if they're being nefarious or there's smart business. I, you know, I, I don't want to speculate there or say anything bad. I, you know, I, I know the guys at Antpool, really nice guys, very smart uh, business people, you know, but they are backing a lot of pools behind the scenes and they're, they're building their hash rate towards 51% but no one will know it because they're doing it kind of behind the scenes. Um, so I, I don't know the reasoning for it other than maybe it's just good business in their mind. They're making good money, um, but it's not good for the Bitcoin network if you know they continue to grow like this. I, I know we're coming up on time, Ryan, but that figure you quoted um, about the number, the majority of hash rate belonging to the top four, the top two, has that gone down with time? Do you know? No, it's, it's gone the exact opposite. So okay. um, it's it just keeps growing. Okay. So before we saw, you know, F2 pool, Binance, um, Slush, the, these were kind of the, you know, Ant pool um, via BTC. They were kind of the big players. When Foundry came on, um, they had a huge amount of capital that was invested from DCG, which is, uh, you know, they also controlled Genesis and Grayscale and these other um, subsidiaries. Uh, invested over a hundred million dollars into their coffers and they started investing in miners and part of the investment was you mine against our mining pool at a zero percent fee so now you have basically a free service you get a hundred percent profitability um very uh, tempting and they're under contract because they borrowed money um so because of that uh foundry within a year incredible business model um michael collier the ceo of foundry uh he knocked it out of the park right they were sponsoring every conference they had just incredible uh just the go-to-market on foundry pool is just absolutely ingenious um and within a year they grew it to be the largest mining pool in the world um the, the problem with uh, mining pools is as they get larger, they're kind of self-destructive because um, you have to, you know, regulate the size of them. Otherwise, it becomes bad for the very ecosystem you're trying to back. Yeah. Yeah. It's, and 
to to regulate you know such such entities that you know want to thrive off regulation sovereignty all these things um you know uh kind of a rock and a hard place debacle um yep. but but anyway i know we're coming up on time ryan i know you have uh, other places to go really quick give the folks who are listening an idea where they can learn more about you more about titan yeah yeah absolutely and there's there's a lot of other things i'm working on i I feel like we, we went on you know so many other paths here. Um, we could have talked probably for hours. Um, you can go to titan.io uh, to learn more about the private mining pools. Um, I'm also working on a protocol called Lumerin, um, focusing on decentralized routing, uh, keeping uh, networks uh, more decentralized through uh, smart contracts. Uh, you can learn about that at lumerin.io. That's L-U-M-E-R-I-N.io. Um, you know, for, for everyone that's uh, in the, the Lumerin community, I apologize for not mentioning this to the end. I, uh, <laughs> but it is, it is going to be it is going to be a very, very uh, significant project in the space because it is a greatly needed technology um, for uh, greater decentralization in both the uh, Bitcoin space um, and for other crypto networks. So, um, you know, to learn more about that, that's Lumerin.io. Um, but my, my day-to-day uh, job is Titan.io, working with Bitcoin uh, miners. Awesome. Well, Ryan, thanks so much for coming on. I know we've been trying to do this for a while, so I really appreciate you giving me some of your time here on this Monday morning. And yeah, just thank you so much for doing what you do with Titan, trying to keep the network safe in both, in both its you know function, but also in centralization in that way too. So uh, thanks so much. It's been great to talk to you. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me on. You bet. Take care. Whether you allowed us to keep you company on your ride home from the office, during your workout, or as you were getting ready for the day, I appreciate you taking the time to listen to this conversation. Be sure to subscribe and follow CEO Sit Downs on whatever podcast platform you use, and I'd really appreciate it if you could leave a review, as it often helps others find the podcast in the future. And if today's episode called to mind a friend or family member who you think would enjoy today's conversation, go ahead and share this episode with them. I would certainly appreciate it, and hopefully they will too. Thanks again for listening, and may you have a pleasant day wherever you may be. (music) 